My name is Vivian Pham and I'm a writer from Sydney, Australia. I have one book out and it's called The Coconut Children. It's a coming of age story um, and it was published by Penguin Random House and I just finished university. I studied philosophy and creative writing um, and I'm currently working on adapting the book for film and for stage. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you, Vivian. So normally I would ask, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? But uh, we've had a pre-interview and we talked about sort of pushing that uh, question down a little bit further until we get into a flow state in our conversation. So um, I want to start by asking... Writing is a grueling process, um, and you published this book at 16. Where do you think you got the muscles to grind at the writing to get, I mean, it probably took you a long time to, to finish it and turn in the manuscript. Where do you think you got the muscle to write like this? Because I'm still, I've been a student and a writer all my life, basically. I've never really had, um, I've been fortunate and unfortunate in a sort of way because I feel sheltered, but I've not had a part-time job before. I've always um, been writing and been a student. So it's always just been, um, and I've always really loved writing. And it's just, I think it starts from the idea of having the muscle for it. I think it's less like a muscle and more like a way of looking at the world and constantly trying to being very interested in other people and being very interested in metaphors and symbols and imagery and finding things poetic uh, a lot of the time and feeling that from a very young age. My sister Kim is a screenwriter as well. And from when she was like eight, eight or so years old, her, her email address was Kim, the director at yahoo.com. So it's like, we've always had this dream of writing stories and, bringing those stories to an audience in some way and so yes so i think i've always we both have <clears throat> always seen the world that way um but in terms of like actually writing i feel like i had two paths when i was maybe when i had just gotten into high school which in australia it starts when you're like 13 um and so i had two paths one of the paths was um slam poetry was really taking off um and I was really, I was a huge, huge fan of The Strivers Row, which is a, poetry, a poet's collective um, from New York. And in particular, I was really, really just enthralled by this one slam poet named Miles Hodges. Um, and I think he's still based out of New York, um, out of Harlem. But he introduced me to a whole, just a whole world, because in one of his poems, or in one of his interviews, he referenced James Baldwin and I was like, who is this poet and who is this poet that he traces his lineage to? Who is this person that inspired him? And so, yes, so I just got, and then James Baldwin became the most important writer to me and reading his books and his, um, watching his speeches because he was such an orator as well. Um, the poetry and um, everything that characterized his voice really just stuck with me. So I had that, which was quite a serious literary upbringing. And then I also had um, fan fiction. So I was a huge fan of 
uh, One Direction and I would just write on Wattpad and OneDirectionFanFiction.com. I would write um, just these really silly stories, but um, it was my first opportunity as a teenager to put writing out there on the internet and to have it read and to have a, actually a quite a decent and loyal following of readers. And that was so thrilling to me. Um, so it was less a muscle and more a way of seeing the world and also a way of wanting to connect to people because the, the rest of my upbringing was so sheltered and felt so disconnected from other people. Yeah. Now, sheltered and being at home and not having to work and being around your parents and, and writing are things that I, I'm trying to figure out how did you go so far into the, the ocean, the, 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 the tide in the deep end without any inspiration from the outside world from, it had to come from somewhere. Did it just come from all of the interviews you watched or reading, or did your mom and dad bring literary friends over and artist friends and they hung out in the living room? Like, where did you get inspired or your sister get inspired from such a young age that you would produce this, you know, big work? Yeah. Um, no, like my, n neither of my parents are literary at all. Um, as in they don't read for pleasure at all. I think the only book my dad would have around was like, um, cause he was like in like a software engineer. So he would just have like technical textbooks lying around. So I, we didn't grow up at all with, um, literature being anything important in our, in our family, but it does just so happen that, um, both parents are great storytellers, oral storytellers. My mom and my dad both are just really good at speaking about things at the dinner table we had a very traditional upbringing in the sense that you know we just dinner was very traditional it was of course no phones no no looking down at your bowl even you had to your eyes were always up here and you were just like always looking and engaging and trying to figure out how your parents day was and stuff um and just really listening and so and it just so happened that they're great storytellers so that was one sense of it is Kim and I uh, had that, them to thank for that. Just their ability to weave stories out of very ordinary, um, ordinary things that had happened to them during the day and people that they'd met who had interested them, who they found funny. So we were just used to, yeah, just finding stories, picking stories out of scraps. And, but uh, both of our parents were very much into film so our mom was very into like TVB dramas from Cantonese dramas translated into Vietnamese, Stephen Chow movies. We grew up loving Stephen Chow movies, the humor and the innocence of, of his storytelling. Um, and our dad was very into, we would, this was when Video Easy was still around in Australia. And so every weekend, one of the only things that we do as a family, because we never really went out. Um, besides going to Cabramatta to grocery shop, the only other thing we did was rent movies together and watch them together on the weekend. So it was just a plethora of of all the movies that you can think of, but things that, a lot of the ones that stand out are things like um, Will Ferrell movies and Tropic Thunder and just all of those really silly 2000s comedies we loved. And of course, like The Breakfast Club and 
some kind of wonderful and things that my dad had, our dad had, um, the things that had characterized his childhood and were in the background as he was growing up because he'd left for, um, he'd escaped Vietnam and uh, when he was 17 and had his last year of high school as an all American boy in, in California. So um, it was really this idea of just trying to get to know people through stories and through movies and trying to build context around them so that you understand who your parents are better. Wait a minute. So, so your dad, how long did he spend in America? Well, he basically, he was there when he was 17. And then he just spent, I think he was like, until his 30s or his 30s there. So he was there so, for a long time. Do you guys speak in English together? With my dad. With yeah. your dad. Okay, so that, yeah, that was weird because I was... I was listening to you. Um, you're, you're, we're having the Zoom from Australia to LA, and I'm listening to you talk. And we've talked before, but I'm now picking up this like not heavy Australian accent. Yeah. And I'm like, it's it's almost like in the middle of a Californian and an Australian accent. Have you ever been told that? Yeah, I mean, growing up, um... I think my accent, I still remember, I would always be tracking my accent because um, I it was it spoke to my dad the most in English at home. Um, and he had a very strong, he sounds like a, like a surfer boy. Um, he, he's very, very Californian. And um, my sister has, I think, quite a strong accent, but it was even stronger when we were little. And I remember because I, because Kim had grown up a little bit in America, I think, she had gone to preschool there. So um, when we were going to school in Australia, everyone would just, in my family, would be pointing out when I would use like Australian slang and when my voice would change a bit when I pronounced a certain word and make fun of me for it. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's um, so interesting. Yeah, um, I was going to call you out. I was going to be like, wait a minute. You don't have an Australian accent. You have more of a Californian accent with a little bit of an Australian accent. With a little bit of a twang to it. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a twang to it. Now, does your mom and dad have these sort of expectations that traditional parents have for their kids? I mean, you kind of achieved something very uh, early on at 16. Do your parents think you should be continuing the writing journey for the rest of your life? Or they Do they push you still in some other traditional path? What happened to us, which has happened to a lot of a lot of Vietnamese people growing up, uh, a lot of the Vietnamese people growing up in Sydney, the more that I speak to people, is that um, there's just a period of estrangement, it seems, in a lot of our lives. So at the moment, there's, I don't feel any parental pressure. Um, Kim and I left home quite suddenly two years ago during the middle of the pandemic. It was just a, it's just a family circumstance and it was, um, it was strange, a strange, strange time, but we're still dealing with the fallout of that. But growing up, definitely, um, I never thought that I would be a full-time writer. And I always thought, oh, I want to do something, you know, um, practical. Like, I, I, I thought, I had this idea that I can just do writing on the side, um, and that because that's something that I don't need a degree for, and that's something that I don't need like vocational training for. So I still, until, until the book was published really. And I thought that that might be a way of supporting myself and my family. 
um, I, I had always thought, oh, I'm going to go to university and I'm going to, you know, become a doctor or maybe a lawyer or a veterinarian or something like that. So I think if the book hadn't been published when I was still in high school, I definitely would have um, chosen to do a vocational kind of career and then um, do writing on the side. And how has the publishing of the book changed your life the way that you thought was going to happen how is it how is it derailed i mean derailed is a weird word but how has it changed the path of in your mind like where you're going it has changed it a lot but it's also put me in contact with people that i never ever thought that i could have ever met really i've and i think that's a really beautiful thing with storytelling you don't know sorry you have no idea the people whose lives um, you're going to touch and whose lives are going to touch yours just through the just through the sheer fact that this book is out there and someone can pick it up and read it um so an example of that is that I did a um I did a book club um I think a year or two ago and it was a I, I had been used to doing book clubs doing book club appearances and talking about my book to like clubs organized by bookstores and libraries and stuff like that like that but this was a private book club and it was just like a few um it was a few middle-aged men all with like a public profile um and I just went and did my thing and spoke about the book and answered questions and they were all super they're all very nice and then afterwards I got an email from one of them just touching up and it kind of um it kind of culminated in this thing where now we're writing a book together and he's like a, a in, he's an incredible guy, a startup founder, and he's doing a lot of work for climate change as well. So, and I had never thought that, you know, I would be doing that one day is be venturing somehow into this world of startup founders and um, yeah, entrepreneurial ecosystems, like they call it. Um so it's that's been really interesting too. That's derailed my writing career in a way because um, I've been commissioned to do that, and I never thought I'd be commissioned wow. to write a novel. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I just ran into somebody um, from Australia into that. Um, what did you call it? Um, entrepreneurial An ecosystem. Ecosystem. Entrepreneurial ecosystem. Pauline, she's uh, Luke Wynn's younger sister at Red Lantern. Oh, yeah. I've heard of her. Yes. And she was telling me about her work with um, that sort of different way to look at uh, entrepreneurship in a, in a more social driven, socially driven uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope yeah. it becomes a, it has to be the next big thing, right? Because the way, <laughs> we're, the way we're handling the world with, with money and capitalism is destroying everything hmm. Hmm. what got you into writing those those james baldwin got me into writing but is there a moment that got you into the writing that that made you sit down and go you know this is what i'm going to pursue for hmm. for a while hmm. so i'd always i'd always liked stringing words together and it being a skill really just like a, in something that um i didn't think much of at first 
I think even in kindergarten, or if I, I had spoken to my kindergarten teacher recently, and she still remembers a certain sentence that I wrote when I was in kindergarten that she really liked. And it, and to her, it just showed that I would be a writer one day because I found that was play to me. So there was, there were paints and there were toys and stuff. Um, and then, so you can imagine a classroom full of colors and, and different toys and utensils to make your fun. And that was just what I chose at the time was to just sit there on my own and, and figure out what words sound nice with what words and how to, how to create an image just using things that really words you're picking out of thin air. So that was one thing. And so for a long time, my writing was very ornamental and I would just like, I would just feel comfortable describing things. And I wanted to in, in fiction at least make a world that was beautiful and that I saw in real life, but I didn't feel like other people were seeing. That always felt like a common theme for me is I was trying to find beauty in things. I'm not trying, I just really always did. And I was trying to preserve that beauty in a paragraph or in a poem. And so I wrote short forms, stuff like that. But it wasn't really until, um, it really does go back for me to th that tradition of, um, slam poetry, spoken word poetry, through to James Baldwin, and seeing um, writing as a way of changing the world in some, it could change the world. Because um, if you could alter the way that a, a person looks at the world through being immersed in your work and through seeing the world through your eyes, it's a huge ask. It's a huge thing yeah. to ask for, to ask someone to read your work because you're asking them to sit in your brain for a bit, yeah. asking them to see the world um, in your eyes. So if you can entice them, I think such a huge part of my work, uh, the beauty has always been a huge aspect of it. And it's part of the didactic and part of wanting to change the world. Because if someone, if you see the world as beautiful, then why would you want to manhandle it? And why would you want to smash it? You would uh, be more gentle in the way that you look at things and the way that you treat things. Um, I think there's a quote by David Edinburgh where I think he's just speaking about, you know, the importance of preserving the natural world and how people can't care about something that they've never experienced. Mm. So if you grow up in an urban area where you, there's no trees, there's no parks, it's just buildings and buildings and ugly architecture and architecture that feels like it's just meant to suffocate you, then of course you're not going to be worried about you know, a, an endangered lion or an endangered tiger or something like that. You're going to be focused on your own survival. You're not going to see the way that you're connected to things outside of you. So that was a huge part of the reason that I started writing was to try to figure out how am I connected to the people around me? How could I possibly, you know, forge a connection with people I've never met? That, that makes sense. Can you tell me about the coconut children and give me a brief synopsis so the audience knows sort of what the book was about um the coconut children is a coming of age story set in Cabramatta. it's set in 1998 and it was a time in Cabramatta when um there's just a lot of uh, unrest in the suburb the suburb itself is very vietnamese australian um and has also a lot of Southeast Asian um, immigrants and refugees have settled there after a 
series, a whole bunch of wars in the last century. Um, so it's a very vibrant, now it's known as a very vibrant place to do grocery shopping and to eat at nice restaurants. But back then in, in the 90s, it was a place where it was a, called the heroin capital of Australia. It was very much vilified by the media. Um, people there were spoken to, spoken about in politicians' terms, very like animals, really. And Vietnamese people were being told to go, you know, that being threatened like they should be sent back to the jungle and things like that because uh, white settler society was very um, scared of what was happening in Cabramatta, not for the people that were living there, but what it meant for them, what it what it was, yeah, the kinds of things that was resisting, yeah. And did you come from Cabramatta or did you come from somewhere else? And how do you so, know about that enclave so well? Well, I think it... Um, I say, I said that it was, it's known now as a place to do your shopping, to do your grocery shopping, go to eat restaurants. It's always been like that for the people that have lived in Cabramatta and the people that have lived in the surrounding suburbs, even in the midst of the, um, the publicized crime and um, the assassination of a politician, of an Australian politician, I think, um, by someone from Cabra. Um, even in the midst of all that, it was also a place where children were growing up and kids were getting tutoring and having piano lessons um, and families were continuing to do their shopping and there were fresh produce every day. Um, and so I grew up in around Bankstown and Sefton. So those are kind of like 10, 15 minutes away from the center of Cabramatta. Um, and I also had... Um, because my story is about two people, it's about a very sheltered, even though I disagree with that term in a lot of ways, a very sheltered um, to herself, um, shy 16 year old girl, um, rediscovering her friendship with um, a 16 year old boy that grew up next door, who is now, when the book begins, just come back from juvenile detention. So yeah. Um, the boy was based on someone very close to me who grew up during that time. So in the course of writing the novel, I was interviewing him a lot and um, getting to know about the suburb through his eyes during that time. Wow. There was a description about Sunny, which is the main one, one of the two main characters is she falls in love very easily, quite easily with, you know, everybody, you know, and I thought about that. I'm like, at 16, these are not, these can't be a description of somebody, you know, and you're just infusing the character with the people that, you know, this has to come from a place inside of you, right? Is it's a two part question. Is mm -hmm. that sunny character you? And also if it is you, how did you find the actual courage to actually write so sincerely, you know, based on the, the way you felt? I mean, did you feel a little bit of sort of shyness or um, push back in your own mind saying, you know, maybe I don't want to give the world away and let them see who I am. I mean, that takes a lot of courage to kind of put that stuff on paper to show the world 
that you know falling in love with a lot of different people it's a very cool thing i think when when i read the description um um well i think <laughs> i don't know if it crossed my mind and if it did i probably just um i probably just consoled myself and said oh i can always deny it in the future <laughs> um but i never really do end up denying it do i um yeah i think it's very well i i come from a a writing practice that is very acquainted with embarrassing myself um because i had i mentioned that i that my start in in literature was through fan fiction and very very silly very silly stories um very silly stories that I knew that, <clears throat> sorry, very silly stories that I knew that other people were thinking about. And I was, it just so happened that I was writing it down, but other people were thinking the same thing about Harry Styles and One Direction and wanting to, um, having the same fantasies as me. I just wanted to write it down. That was the only difference between us and make it a public thing rather than just a, a private daydream. Um, but I think it is true to, there are lots of um, aspects of Sunny that I share. And I think a lot of teenage girls share, um, especially when you grow up in a strict household um, where there's a lot of responsibility put on you and the happiness of your family and your household seems to rely on whether or not you do well at school or whether or not you um do all your chores or you're able to, you know, emotionally be there for your parents in a way that they are not able to be there for each other. So I, I think just um, when you're like that, when you grow up like that, it's very easy to make up imaginary relationships mm. and fall in love very, very easily with people that you have no you don't know at all because that's easier than um you don't know many people and the people that you do know sort of disappoint you and let you down continuously so you want to be safe in your daydreams and just um you want to have a place where you can be happy and fall in love and that just happens to be your imagination now looking back on that character do you think you've changed much or departed much from that way of being um, oh, such a great question. I've been dealing with this a lot. I've been thinking about this a lot. And I actually wrote an article. I wrote an art, um, an essay for Harper's Bazaar. Harp, I wrote an article recently for Harper's Bazaar Australia um, about Harry Styles, because I think he's coming on tour um, in Australia in next year. So my plan, because I'm a very, my plan was to scheme like an interview with him and have a cover story, but it didn't end up happening. So I just wrote um, an essay about my obsession with him as a teenager. Um, and in that essay, I write about finding a word called, I think the word is a coy romantic. Um, and I think another word for it is lithsexual, but basically, it's a kind of orientation or it's a kind of romantic attraction that um, a person feels where they feel like they're only romantically interested in someone um, when 
it's clear and it's established that that person will never um, return your feelings or will never reciprocate your feelings. So that seems to, um, that seems to, to characterize that seems to have continued through from, from as a girl to now for you. That seems to characterize Sunny. Um, the character Sunny's um, affections, especially at the beginning of the story, where she's constantly pouring her love in places that it will never, she will never see it again. And there's a beauty in that, I think. And I, I feel the same. I don't like putting labels on things, but in my experience so far, it seems that I only like people I don't know. <laughs> so it's not even like unrequited love it's people that will never that you'll never have a chance to even get to know you yes <laughs> all right let, let's 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 uh we're gonna make a quick left turn here because i have to talk about harry styles oh okay you you talked about one direction early in the interview you just talked about him now you talked about harry styles my daughter and i um follow Harry Styles. We love him. I was so close to going to his concert recently. Really? And yeah, because he's here in LA for 14 nights oh. at the Forum. And this is not messing around. The tickets are like $400. Is that USD? USD. No. And he has 14 nights. The average ticket's 1400 Oh, 400 400 US dollars average. How does he sustain... 14 nights it's almost like a residency in las vegas at 400 dollars average and that stadium that he's playing at is big i had no idea harry styles was this big he's massive and that is a ridiculous price verging on immoral my god it's crazy <laughs> it's crazy yes his following is very very loyal and it's only grown it has only grown to encompass much older women it used to be teenage girls, and now I think a lot of the crowd will be like 40, 50 year old women. Yeah, it's insane. But I mean, the music that he puts out recently is just breathtaking. I, I like his, yeah, I like his music a lot. Yeah, I'm a big fan. My brother and I are big fans. We, we're like yeah. older Vietnamese guys, but we love Harry Styles. Really? <laughs> yeah, we love Harry Styles. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, other than just looking so charming and handsome and and so dreamy the music and who writes this stuff for him is he writing the music is he writing the lyrics i mean um i think i think i've looked into this and i think he like co-writes um i don't know my 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 affections have changed you can probably tell but yeah. um i was very very yeah i don't know i'm still i'm dealing with it it's like, it's like falling, it's like getting out of a relationship, I think, except this relationship has been going on since I was like 11. So <laughs> there's lots of, there's lots of emotions here. So every question I ask is related to peering inside of an artist's mind, right? And this is how I look at the, and I want to know what made it, what made you fall out of love or what out of infatuation with Harry Styles? What is, what has he done? in his public life to make you feel th that you don't like him as much anymore? I don't know. I think it's just me. I think it's just, um, you I growing up. Just, yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's just me growing up and realizing, 
you know, um, I don't know, maybe my tastes are changing. I don't, I don't know. And also I think it's um, just a lot of history. Like I, I remember just nights like crying myself to sleep thinking like I will never meet him and I just really want to meet him just to so you know I'm coming from that kind of place where I'm extremely sentimental and extremely emotional as a as a you know 14 year old girl yeah so um it's I cannot be objective at all but uh, I think it's also like a, a I think maybe I don't know if this is a normal experience of fangirls but I think there's a resentment as well like oh my gosh I wasted so much of my childhood mm -hmm my teenage years just crying and writing fan fiction and building like worshiping fan accounts on Twitter. Um, so I don't but, know. But it's, but it's beautiful too. It's beautiful to have that experience and be able, being able to share it because there's a certain way of life that, you know, I think uh, people universally around the world could, could, could actually, feel what you what you feel they go through what you uh go through and they they're unable to write in words what what you're able to describe right now jumping off from this now um we'll go into a little bit uh of of this idea of like growing up being attracted and i think about this too because i was attracted to to white women both in the media and in real life right like i had to deal with that for many many years and this idea of like our type, right? Mm -hmm. Have you now, because of like the amount of reading and growing, are you changing your type in terms of like being attracted? I mean, to, to Harry's, Harry Styles is a white man, <laughs> let's just call it what it is, right? Has it broadened as a result of the amount of learning, the amount of reading, the amount of James Baldwin that you've ingested into your mind? The amount of understanding of imperialism and 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 its fruits around the world and how it relates to us as Asian people. Hmm. Great question. I definitely had that phase as well of just um, of growing up and thinking only seeing um, white people, white beauty in the media, and thinking that was the only way to yeah. be thinking that was the only, I thought the only way to be beautiful was to have, to be very tall and to be very thin, to have blonde hair yeah. and blue eyes. And especially in Australia, the way that Australia markets itself to its own citizens as this um, beachy haired, blue eyed Republic is really, I think it's changed now because of these various various movements so that we can see some diversity but when i was growing up it was very much just that that was the only image that was yeah. the only standard so um the abercrombie image yes the, the abercrombie image um and so especially because when i was in primary school and i had to move schools um abruptly in like year four to basically a very white dominated school that was the time in my life where it was um that was one that was one direction um that was when they formed on x factor as well and then that's when i was suddenly because i came the my local public school was very multicultural and i saw a lot of um you know asian kids um polynesian kids 
Indigenous kids, um, Lebanese kids, Middle Eastern kids, we were just, that's just the way that we were. That's the way that we looked. And I never really questioned it. And then until I moved schools and all of a sudden all the popular girls and all the people that were coming first in athletics carnivals and were held up at assembly were all white. Um, that's just the way that it was. So in my mind, no one has to tell you that you're worthless and ugly. You just inferior. see mm-hmm. yeah, you're inferior. You just see what's being held up um, and what is being valued um, by your peers and by your parents and your teachers. So there is definitely that. And then yes, discovering James Baldwin, thinking about this love and obsession that I had um when I was pre-teens with being white or assimilating to whiteness, um, I realized that that obsession had turned very quickly into resentment mm. and bitterness and not wanting anything to do with Western thought, yeah. Western values at all, which is a very, it, it, I was at a crossroads and I didn't realize, I don't realize <clears throat> like until now really how, Vietnamese I am, but how Western I am, how Western educated, how we learned about the enlightenment and how to, to, to be, have your imagination skewed in that way to, to, to value the, you know, democracy, freedom, um, all these things that are marketed towards you as coming about because of Western society. It's a very strange dynamic to hold in yourself to think I have to be just Vietnamese. And then you think about what what does that mean? Because we're Southeast Asian geographically, but we're so East Asian culturally, we were dominated for over a thousand years by China. We were the last, I think the last place on earth to hold the Imperial Confucian exams in way. So it's like- Living in that duality, right? Living in that duality and then so to live, it's a duality, but it's also, it's threefold. It's mm. manifold. There's so many There's so many different ways of looking at it. And then to live in that and to think that you can somehow revert to a state of purity, to a state of just being Vietnamese, wow. is, it's, it's impossible. impossible. And so it's very strange. Thank it's you. Strange. I, I, I've always thought that too. But mm. but now, I you know, I've, I've never really thought of it out loud in words. And you just said that you just said it, you just said what I've, I've always felt like there's this side, there's that side. And then there's the third, what are we, the third culture kids. Mm. So the manifold and, but I've never thought of it as like, you know, it's impossible to go back and become pure again, become pure in anything. Right. It's impossible. The more that I, the more that I read about it, the more that I'm like, because one of the things that I've, since we've moved out, I don't have that regular, um, I don't have people to speak to in Vietnamese regularly anymore. I would only speak in Vietnamese to my mom and to my grandma um, and to family members and stuff, except for my dad. So to not have that anymore, I was very scared of losing it, um, of losing the language. And then I realized there's something you know, not more important, but it's linked to the language. And that would be the literature and the arts of Vietnam that I had never been exposed to through my parents. They knew very little about Vietnamese literature. Um, And I think my dad only mentioned like once or twice that he would have to learn 
he would have to memorize passages from Jinkyu. Mm-hmm. Um, but besides that, I was like, what culture, what liter, what literature do we have? So now that I'm trying to research that and trying to read um, Vietnamese books written in like the 1920s, 30s, 40s and stuff like that, um, the way that I'm having to do it is to like transliterate it and then put it on like being translated so someone, so like a computer can read it out to me and automated Vietnamese voice can read it out to me. And so that's been a strange experience, but it's just teaching me how even in the 1920s, Vietnamese people you know, prior to the Vietnam War, prior to be to being scattered around um, the world as we are now, um, we were still thinking already what does it mean to be Vietnamese because society was changing so much. What did it mean to be um, uh, part of the intelligentsia? What did it mean to be part of the peasants? What did it mean to revolt on both sides? Um, what did it mean to be a middle-class Vietnamese person funded by the government to go to France and to to experience French culture and to bring it back what did it mean to be a Vietnamese person to be funded to go to Japan um, and all these political figures it is so you can yeah just I'm just trying to drive that point of there is no purity in this world because we're constantly mixing and we're each of us contain a part of each other's history and a, yeah. a part of each other's present so it, it's just but that is a very fuddling the fuddling thought and very it doesn't make things easier but in a sense it does because you know that you no longer have to strive for something that you can never attain any anyway what does it mean to be vietnamese to then to be vietnamese to me means to in my it's a very personal a very personal experience of listening to stories and trying to, so I'm speaking from a very particular perspective, which is to be born in America, to live most of my life in Australia, to have a mother that was able to leave um, Vietnam by airplane when she was when she was like 20 or so, um, and to have a father that had to escape through a boat that had to live on a refugee in a refugee camp in Malaysia and then to struggle in America. So my mom's side of the story feels quite privileged. My dad's side of the story is the bottom of whatever we're talking about. Um, at least that's the way it was described to me. And so, um, and to have a, a mother that grew up in Saigon and who had a maid growing up to have a father that grew up in the village in a village that now has probably been bombed out of existence and that I will never, that I have heard stories of and I can hear the river that he talks about that people wash their clothes in and also defecated in at the same time, yeah. but at different levels of the stream um, to have those plot points in my memory of something that doesn't exist that I've never been to, but it existed to him that's what it has meant for a long time. Being Vietnamese meant to have to reconstruct a whole society that I had never been to, I will never be able to go to. Um, that's what it meant for a long time, but it's changing. It's changing because of literature and because of historians and because of a lot of Vietnamese American academics that are um, writing about what it was like 
just knowing that a historian who has the skills has done the work makes me feel like I don't have to excavate anymore. Looking back now on the writing that you did with the Coconut Children and the awards you won, do you go back and think, how do, you, how do you feel about it now? How do you feel about who you were, how you wrote? Do you have any judgment on any of it? I was very um, judgmental at the beginning, I think, um, when I had just come out. It was my first, it's my first book. And so I was doing something that writers should never do, which is go on Goodreads and read the people's reviews. <laughs> of what it, of, of their experience of the book and i i didn't keep in mind that you know a lot of the audience it was reaching which is people that have the time and the um the leisure to be able to read and which is middle class usually middle class white people in australia i didn't i really made it harder for myself because they didn't a lot of people didn't get it and they didn't resonate with them and i was I was blaming myself and being like, you know, it's my fault. I didn't entice them enough to value us as human beings and to, as, to value our experience and to think of our lives as capable of meaning and poetry and something larger than just this label Vietnamese immigrant story, you know? So I felt very cheapened by that, but it wasn't anyone's fault. It was just, that's just the way writing is. You put it out there and you expect and, and, you know, it's on the reader to have their own way, their own perspective and their own experiences in life to be able to see, to be able to see it in a way that you intended it, but it, it never happens. So, or it can only happen for some people. So um, to expect a lot, to expect it to change the world and it not to change the world was crushing, crushing to me at the beginning, but I'm fine now. <laughs> And what about any follow-up work? Um, I know you talked about getting commissioned to to do something for uh, another person, but anything coming from sort of your own um, a follow-up to Coconut Children? I have been having a difficult time writing recently because of um, because of the just like the material circumstances. I'm trying to continuously find work um, through like pitching. Uh, most of my income is like pitching um, essays and stuff to like magazines and newspapers and then doing writing workshops, um, leading writing workshops for kids, which is very, very writing affirming for me. But um, I've been finding it hard to concentrate, to sit in a room on my own, like I was able to so well when I was 16 and just be with a blank page. That's been very difficult. I think part of it is because of, I think COVID has something to do with it. Yeah. Like, I used to love locking myself in the room and then the world was like, lock yourself in the room and now I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so there's that aspect of it as well, but I'm learning, I think, and I'm just wanting to fall in love with language again. Um, yeah, I think the follow-up thing I've been thinking about is something set in Vietnam in the 1920s, which is a very, I think I like period. Yeah, um, it shows. 
And, and yeah, I want to ask about that, you know, writing period, which is actually writing about a time that is not in our modern time or not in our current uh, time. Writing period is about writing in the past and the history that you wrote about Cabramada in the 90s. How did you write so much uh, detail into the story when you didn't live it, when you didn't? I mean, there's things in there that um, I've read passages um that I was like blown away for, a, I mean, probably, probably got started at 15 describing these things. How wow. did you get that information downloaded into your mind? Well, I'm very lucky in a lot of ways that Karamata has changed very little on the surface. So mm. what in the nineties, like even now when you go to Karamata, they're using the same cash registers as they would have in the eighties. They have the same receipts sticky taped to the walls that have probably been there for 20 years. And so uh, I've always thought that was very beautiful. Like a lot of the places also, they haven't changed. A lot of the restaurants haven't changed their cutlery and their um, bowls for a very long time and their furniture and the decor. Very little has changed. So I was lucky in that everything already seemed old to me when I was growing up looking at things. Um, and that was always interesting. But I would also read, as I got into writing it, as I said, I interviewed a lot of the people around me who, you know, just housewives that had spent the, the last two decades shopping at Cabramatta, had seen things, had never spoken about it before. So getting, piecing stories together. Um, and also reading academic academic work there's a academic from Sydney named Lisa Lisa Marr, who I got in touch with because she is, I think, an epi epidemiologist. And she was, um, at the time uh, that it was happening in the 90s, Lisa was going out to Cabramatta and um, I think conducting research, but also just being a support system for um, people who were dealing with addiction in Cabramatta and she was helping tell their stories and it's compiled into like an exhibition and a book of accounts that have been turned into like prose poetry. So it's been amazing finding sources um, and finding that it has been recorded in a sympathetic way as well. It's not just been the vilification that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Now you dabble quite a bit in in writing um fiction and now you're getting into adapting it into a stage play and adapting it for script for feature films what is the primary difference in your mind going from book form novel form to script form um with okay so with novels i've really felt a freedom of Oh, if I want the character Sunny to dwell on looking at the birds for a little bit, I can just do that. And if yeah. I can really sit in her internal monologue for as long as I want, for as long as I want to drag it out, for as long as I think it serves the story and us getting to know this character, um, it's harder to justify moments like that in film, I think, and on the stage as well. Well, it, with stage it's hard to flip scenes so you really have to choose <laughs> everything has to be grounded and have its space and really take up the whole stage and feel 
feel spectacular, I think, whereas there's not that pressure in novels. Um, and so I've been finding, I, I remember finding it very difficult to transplant certain thought processes of the characters in the novel to the stage because I felt like it, I thought it was too monologue and I couldn't imagine an actor delivering this in a way that felt yeah. true. Compelling or true. Yeah, compelling. Without it just feeling like this is a writer who's written a passage and then someone's read it out. So I, I yeah, still need I, a view of that. Yeah. I think <laughs> script writing is, is second to comedy writing on stand-up comedy writing. I think stand-up comedy writing is is hard because you you know I mean, it's not just the writing but it's the delivery and how it sounds like, but script writing has to. It's devoid of it's void of 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 any flowery descriptions, any thoughts that we have in our mind. It has to deliver a certain emotion by just showing. Mm. And I think in in writing novels, you can read about um, basically what you said. You could go anywhere, anytime, go as long as you feel like it. And then return back to what you were originally trying to do. Exactly, it's it's very lax in that way. And then with film, film feels more natural to me because uh, I think the whole time I was writing the book, I really was thinking about it as a film, and I was able to describe things because I thought I was imagining it as a film one day. So this really is a dream, a dream I've been dreaming for a very long time. Um, and so it, I remember even like, yeah, it doesn't feel like that quite big of a jump because when I was stuck, um, whenever I would be stuck writing a certain part in the book, I could just storyboard it so I could see what's happening, mm, so I wow. what to describe. And also if I was writing dialogue and it just wasn't feeling, I just couldn't, it wasn't feeling right. I could just open, um, what's that program? That's Final draft or? Yeah, Final Draft. I would just open Final Draft and I would just write it in um, in that document, the dialogue, the conversation. And just to see it in a different font, it just felt like um, it was. I was able to think differently or to feel more like this is a character speaking. Um, but it has been difficult because applying for funding to be able to even write the screenplay, Kim and I have had to work on the treatment, the treatment which we've never had to do before. I've never had to know exactly what I'm going to write before I even write it. Wow. So that's been very difficult, but very, very rewarding, really rewarding because but, but, I get to work with Kim and Ben Lawrence and Paula Jensen. Yeah. So they're awesome. <laughs> but why is it different? Why is it hard when you already have the book already written? Don't you know what beats to, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in that process because you already have the book, you already have the train tracks written down, laid down. And so now it's just a matter of like pulling the specific beats that you kind of want to be in the film. No, it is that, but it's just like, Oh, the sequencing and when to hint information that the audience has to know and where to plant it, having to figure that out. And also it would probably be easier if it was a straight adaptation, but it's not. Ah. There'll be a bit, there'll be quite a big, a little bit of a big change in the way the story is told and the key aspect of the character, which I can't say just yet, but yeah, yeah it's been cool. Have you, have you been to Vietnam? Um, I was, I think the last time I was in Vietnam was um, 2014. 
So it's been like eight years. I miss it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very different place eight years ago. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of changes happening. We talk about this on the podcast all the time. There's yeah. changes happening every six months. You know, it feels like a different city every time you go back. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And then uh, are you are you coming out to California anytime soon? Um, I have no reason to yet, but I hope something springs up. Yeah, making a movie out here. <laughs> With people out here. <laughs> One yeah. day I would love to do that. And and w when you do make this movie, is it going to be made um, predominantly with <laughs> financing from Australia, teams from Australia, everything, from actors obviously from Australia? I would think so. I would think that primarily at the at this point, it seems like the funding would mostly come from yeah Australian government bodies, um, arts arts uh, arts initiatives and things like that, and actors from Australia. It, it feels like a Probably a smaller movie at the moment, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. Canada and Australia are so good with that, you know, providing grants and funds for, you know, artists and filmmakers. Mm. Yeah, that's what we don't have here in, LA, in America as much. Mm. Yeah. Well, Vivian, thank you so much for today. Um, I am always so uh, surprised that there's, you know, these Vietnamese people doing such amazing things in so many different parts of the world. And, you know, when I heard about your story and, and, and what you've accomplished at 16, I was so impressed by, by that work. And I'm, you know, today I understand the, the depth of, of, of how you think. And thank you for sharing that with me today. Thank you so much, Kenneth. Like, I think when I had spoken before about being so relieved that people Vietnamese people and other people have already been doing the work that um, I feel like I don't have to be a historian of stories or I don't have to take on that burden. I think a lot of that comes, it falls on you as well. Like knowing that you've already you built this, you know, this whole thing where you're interviewing Vietnamese people and getting all of our perspectives on things. Um, just knowing that you're like a historian to me as well. That's very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. 